Well, this morning we're actually going to close our study on First and Second Thessalonians. And so we're going to read the, the last few things that the Apostle Paul has to say to this church that he loves so much. Remember that these two letters contain about as much personal information or, or personal outpouring of emotion and adoration as any of Paul's epistles. But as he closes this up with this young church in Thessalonica, he makes a couple of personal requests of them, and I think that's going to be wonderful for us to read. He continues to admonish them in their lifestyle, their discipleship of Jesus Christ, their, how their everyday life can become a part of glory to Jesus Christ. And then he finishes with this brief, but I just think beautiful, prayer for peace for the church. As we finish 2 Thessalonians, let's keep in mind some of the big picture issues that we've read inside of these two epistles. Remember that Paul and his missionary team, Paul and Silas and Timothy, had helped to start this church from scratch. You can read the story of the beginning of this church and others in the same region in Acts 16, 17, in the beginning of chapter 18. As Paul and this missionary team make their way from Turkey into Macedonia, they go through Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and then on to Athens and then the city of Corinth. And it's there in the city of Corinth where Timothy is probably making his way back and forth, uh, bringing the letters from Paul to the church and news from the church back to Paul and so forth. So they're maintaining their connection with this church that they love. This church is very young. As Paul writes these letters, this church may only be a few months old in their faith, which makes their discipleship and their endurance just a magnificent thing for us to read. And we read that they're doing well by and large. And the things that Paul had taught them to do, Paul says, I want you to continue to do them more and more. But they all need, as we all do, need, they, they need guidance and direction in their discipleship. And Paul is happy and quick to provide that in their doctrine about the day of the Lord and their lifestyles with Jesus Christ, about their health with each other and with him and their relationship with God. We've also learned, we saw pieces of it in the first book, we see it explicitly in the second book, that this young church is actually suffering for their faith. In fact, this church was born in persecution. When you read the story, the beginning of this church, the pressure against the church was so severe that it actually forced Paul and his missionary team out of the city and then, then down the rest of the coast. And we read that this church continues to suffer persecution for naming the name of Jesus Christ. But they, as young believers, endure in a difficult situation. And so they exist as these profound examples for you and me in endurance with Jesus Christ. So as we read Paul's final words to the church, excuse me, the church in Thessalonica, here's some of the things that we're going to read this morning. First of all, Paul asks for prayer. Twice already inside of this book, he's broken out in prayer on their behalf, and now he asks them for prayer. He wants the gospel to spread, and he wants the gospel to touch the lives of other people with the same kind of effectiveness and power that it had uh, touched their lives with. So he prays that the gospel will continue. It turns out that Paul and his team, they are also suffering for the faith. So he asks for deliverance, and he prays for their deliverance as well. And then he wants God to draw them all closer to himself in this beautiful little prayer at the very beginning of this chapter. 
So Paul asks for prayer from the Thessalonians. Secondly, he talks to them about their work. And when we talk about work this morning, we're not talking about work in general. We're talking about the things that we do with our hands and our capacities and our skills, our, so to speak, our Monday through Friday lives. And he talks to them about their work. You see, their faith and our faith is far more than just what happens inside of our personal prayer lives. It's more than what happens when we gather together as the family of God to worship him. It is something that happens every day of our lives. So their Monday to Friday lives matter deeply to God. We're going to learn that God has created us to work in a way that honors him and shows love to our neighbor. We're also going to read where Paul tells us that breaking that pattern dishonors God and dishonors our neighbor. So Paul has, I think, some fascinating things to say about that. He asks for prayer. He talks to them about their daily work. And then as he closes the book, he prays for them one last time. May the God of peace grant you peace at all times and in every way. Well, let's begin reading 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, the first five verses. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread ahead and be honored, may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Finally, brothers, pray for us. A few times in both books, twice in this short little three-chapter book, Paul is broken out in prayer for them, sometimes even in the middle of complicated conversations about what the day of the Lord is going to be like. He stops at the end of that, and he prays for them. He prays that God will do great things and establish them in their hearts and their work and, and their labor for the cause of God. Paul continues to pray for them, but now I just find this beautiful. He asks them for their prayer. I need your prayer. We need your prayer because this is happening. And this is what we want to be able to do. And your prayers are going to help make that possible. I think this is important for us to hear. The church of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, are intended to pray for each other. That sounds maybe simple or, okay, we've, we've known that for a long time, but It's important for us to land on this for a few minutes, to understand how important and significant this is to the life, the body of Jesus Christ, the church. Notice that Paul's spiritual relationship with the Thessalonians was not a one-way street. I, after all, am the Apostle Paul. You can't believe the things that I've seen. My team is, well, they're pretty cool too. So I'm going to pray for you because my prayers have extra weight and meaning, but don't worry. I don't need your prayers. I'm fine. We're good. His spiritual attention is not a one-way street. He prays for them openly and publicly, and then he says, you know what, guys, I need your prayer too. This is a mutual support society, the family of God is. 
This is a place where each of us knows we need the prayer support of others, and then we are ready to give it. And hopefully when we say things like that, it's not just the kind of jargon that Christians like to use, I'll be praying for you, and then it just slips out of our mind and we never do it again, but we take it seriously. Maybe even in those moments where we say, well, I'll be praying for you, maybe what we should do is actually stop and pray for somebody in that moment because we take this seriously. And brothers and sisters of Christ need this kind of prayer support with each other. It's interesting how this struck me this week with some of the things I've been reading and some of the things I know that you guys have been reading and seeing as well, Um, especially if you're on social media. I know I'm on social media way more than I ought to be. Um, at least once a week. It's just, <laughs> it's way too much. But we hear this kind of language a lot. And, and stick with me through this, because I, I have a point in this part of the conversation. Something drastic will happen across the, you know, the other side of the nation. Something dramatic, something devastating will happen. And then what will, will happen is that Christians and others will then will begin to express the kind of support that they know how to express to people that they don't see. And they'll say things like, my thoughts and my prayers are with you. And people will write that, and and people will say that. And then more and more, it's becoming common to mock that reaction. Thoughts and prayers, give me a break. That doesn't do anything. If you really wanted to do something, here's what you really need to do. It's becoming popular to mock the response to disaster. My prayers are with you. Now, I understand, and we understand as Christians, the importance of engaging where we have the ability to engage. Scripture tells us that if it is in your hand to help your neighbor, do not refuse to help your neighbor, okay? We understand that. But Christians who understand what prayer is and who our God is, we are not allowed to mock the response to disaster, my prayers are with you. This means something if we take prayer seriously and if we take who God is seriously, right? Look at it like this. Paul is praying for believers he doesn't see. He's not on Facebook, but he may as well be. He's writing a letter that gets sent to them. And he says, here's how I'm praying for you. I'm not physically with you. I'm not right there next door to you to help take care of your needs, but I am praying for you, and that's meaningful. It's so meaningful that I'm asking you now for your prayers. You may never see me again, but we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And I need your prayers. It's meaningful when we say things like this as followers of Jesus Christ. So Paul does this, and you and I need to learn how to follow in his footsteps. I bring this example up to you um, because it's someone who was actually a part of this congregation for a few years. Two of our missionaries that we support, uh, they live and they work uh, in Africa, Larry and Rhonda Allen. They were a part of this church for a few years. In fact, their daughter got married in this church. Some of you may remember them. A few months ago, while in Southeast Africa, uh, Larry had this massive heart attack, and his health was so bad that they didn't know um, if they could fly him out to Europe or fly him out to the U.S., so they had to find some place locally where he could have this pretty significant and severe heart surgery. And so uh, his wife, Rhonda, has placed, you know, had put out on Facebook, you know, if you guys can, be praying for him because this is complicated and this is tough. This could be the end of Larry's life. That happened in the spring and then through the summer. 
And then Larry writes on Facebook uh, on the 25th of October, just a few days ago, he puts this. And I want you guys to hear this because we're a part of this. Three months ago today, I had heart bypass surgery at Life Four Ways Hospital in Johannesburg, South Africa. Dr. Rampini and his team performed six bypasses, not a typo, six. He commented to Rhonda that he didn't know how I was still alive and that I was a walking time bomb. If you have heart issues, you know what it feels like to think I'm a walking time bomb. However, thousands around the world were praying, and the surgery was successful, and I am recovering nicely. I seem to be ahead of schedule if there is such a thing in a type of, this type of surgery recovery. Thank you to each of you who prayed. Rhonda and I are convinced that I am still alive and able to continue working because you prayed. My prayers are with you, and it's meaningful, and it makes a difference. We can't mock it. Don't let people in public mock you for saying that. Continue to do it and continue to pray and continue to ask for a prayer when it's needed as well. So Paul, in this request with them, I just find it beautiful what he asks for. He says, I need your prayer because I want the gospel to speed ahead and that we will be delivered from wicked and evil individuals because they want to stop the spread of the gospel, but we want the gospel to spread more and more. So let's pray that that happens. And I like the way that he puts it, that the gospel will have its effect on others the way it has had in you. If Christ has saved you, if Christ has transformed you, let's pray that others will have the same experience. Doesn't that make sense for people who are saved by grace? This is what God has done for me. Let's make sure we do everything we can so that it happens for others as well. Paul says there were people trying to stop them from doing that. So let's pray that they fail. Let's pray that the gospel goes forward. At the very end of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is one of Paul's short prayers for the Thessalonians. And one of the things that he says is, I pray that the work God has given you to do, he will continue to work inside of you. It will continue to be a powerful and magnificent thing what he's given you to do. And then immediately he turns around and he says, here's the work God has given us to do. And that is to spread the gospel everywhere that we go. So I want you to pray for me that the work that God has given me to do, right, will spread and be effective and be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul is confident, he says, and remember, he's speaking to Christians in complicated and difficult situations. Paul is confident that our faithful God will complete his work in all of us. Though the world sometimes rages around us, he says there are plenty of out there who don't have faith, but our God is faithful, and he will complete his work in you. Some of us need to hear this, that though things rage around us and it feels like things crumble around us, understand what Paul says he speaks to you and me as well. Others don't have faith. Situations are complicated and difficult, but God is faithful. And he will complete what he wants done. And what he says in verse 5, I still remember when I first became aware of this prayer. And you know how this is if you read Scripture often. You read a lot of Scripture, and you go through it, and you read something for maybe the fifth time in your life, and then, wham, all of a sudden the light bulb goes on. And you stop, and you think, oh, man, i got to hang on to this one. This one, to me, is something 
I think we should hang on to. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. I have always loved this prayer. And it's beautiful to think about knowing more and more about the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. He says that's what we need to be drawn into more and more. But here's what I like about it. Paul says, let's pray that God pulls you in closer to himself. May the Lord direct your heart to him more and more and more. I absolutely love that. This is such a comforting truth in our faith. Instead of us belonging to a religion that relies on achievement, that relies on being better tomorrow than I am today so that I can attain the favor of my God, we're a religion that requires some kind of ladder climbing of deeds and the earning of relationship with God. Instead of that, we have a God who does the work of drawing his children closer to himself, closer into his love and closer into the steadfast mercy of Jesus Christ. This is phenomenal. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you really can pray God, bring me closer to you. God, teach me more about you. God, hold me tighter and tighter next to you. Isn't that beautiful? This is the God that we follow. So as we listen to what Paul says, let's learn how important it is for us to pray for each other and that that's meaningful, friends. It's not throwaway phrasing. It means something. Let's pray for each other. Let's pray for the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The grace that we have received, we want others to receive it as well. And let's pray for God to bring us closer to himself. And as we listen to Paul praying for and with and asking for prayer with the Thessalonians, let's keep one eye on that as we continue, as we listen to what else Paul has to say. He's got one more thing that he really has to deal with with this young church and their worship of God, their relationship with Jesus Christ. And it has to do with the worship of their daily lives. Not just their prayer lives, but what they do with themselves on a regular basis. It has to do with the worship of their work. Some of you have maybe never heard that kind of phrase put together before, but we're going to learn what it means to worship God with our work through what Paul has to say here. So let's begin chapter 3, verse 6. Now we commend you, brothers. Notice how this starts. It's not, now I hope you guys are going to do something about this here. Paul actually says twice in this passage, we command you. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate about work. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, 
let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. There's a lot going on in this passage of Scripture, maybe even some things that feel a little uncomfortable to us. We don't quite yet know what to do with. Some of you probably wanted to stand up and cheer at a couple of moments. Who knows? But let's walk through this, and let's listen to what Paul and the rest of Scripture has to say about this issue. Here's Paul's overall concern with these Christians and with us as well in this passage of Scripture, that the Christian's work ethic honors God and loves their neighbor. That the Christian's work ethic honors God and loves their neighbor. We saw pieces of this in the first book. And now we see it explicitly in 2 Thessalonians. There were some of them who had simply quit working. They were, as Paul puts it a couple of times, walking in idleness. And Paul has rather strong warnings for them. Some of them may even sound harsh to us, right? We had learned maybe through these two books that some of them have decided, well, if the day of the Lord is coming soon, if Jesus Christ is coming soon, then the last thing I should be wasting my time doing is going to my cube and doing my job. So I'm going to quit my job, and I'm going to become what the Old Testament Scriptures call a sloth. And Paul says they're walking in idleness, and we have to correct that. We have to change that. So the belief that, well, if Jesus is coming soon, I'm wasting my time working is the wrong way to see work. If Jesus is coming soon, then I shouldn't quit working. What I should do is redeem my work so that every day I am at my job and doing what God has given me to do, whatever it is, I'm doing it to honor God and to love my neighbor. So instead of being idle or a sloth, Paul wants them to continue to follow their example in working well. We're going to learn that Scripture teaches us how God has actually created us to work. He's created us to flourish in good work. He's created us to even find a certain kind of meaning in our good work. And he's also created us to love our neighbor in good work. Work that they need done but don't have the ability or the time or the skill or the resources to do. But it's work that I just happen to be able to do. And they need it. I can. I'm going to do it. And my neighbor's going to benefit from it. Work becomes an act of love of neighbor as well. So Paul in this passage talks about our work. And here are just a few things that he says just in brief and then we'll dig into some things. Idleness is a sin. Sloth is a sin. If someone is not willing to work, Paul says... Well, then let's try this incentive with them. Take their food away from them. That's quite the incentive, right? But it's a sin, and we'll talk a little bit about how that works. Mature believers set an example for good work for others. Paul says, while we were with you, we could have asked for offering from you. Because the work of Christian service and the work of Christian ministry, that's work. 
And we, we could have asked for money from you, but because you were a young church, here's what we did. We set an example of labor for you. And so we worked hard among you. And we never took your bread from you. We paid for everything that we got from you. So mature believers set an example for the rest of this church about how work works. This is fascinating to me. According to Scripture, according to Paul, we work in order to give instead of to take. And we'll talk about that as well. And then overall, we work to love God and to love our neighbor. So God cares about our work. He cares about your work. What you have in the Monday to Friday job, whatever it is, God cares about how that happens. Now, when we talk about work biblically, is there a way of understanding this, how Scripture speaks of this thing? Because it turns out Scripture talks about our work, our labor, a lot. And what we have here, what I'm giving you, I think is a pretty good biblical definition of what we mean by work. So work is anything meaningful we do that God equips us to do and can be done for his glory, for the help of our neighbor and as part of the foreshadowing of his kingdom. This is a nice nutshell of how Scripture talks about our work. And notice that this includes things like what I do that uh, puts money in the bank and a roof over my head and clothes on our back. Okay, it includes that. And it includes work that we do that necessarily isn't necessarily paycheck work, but it's what God has put in our hands to do. And it's the raising of children. It's the working with our neighbors. It's whatever God has given us to do that can be done for his good, for the love of neighbor, and for the foreshadowing of his kingdom inside of this world. I ran across this quote a while ago, and I love it. It's from Martin Luther King Jr. It's a bit of a tongue twister, but... It gets the point across, and I want you guys to hear Martin Luther King Jr. on this. If it falls to your lot to be a street sweeper, sweep the streets like Michelangelo painted pictures, like Shakespeare wrote poetry, like Beethoven composed music. Sweep streets so well that all the host of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. Say that 10 times fast. But he's right. Whatever God has put in your hands to do, do it so that all of heaven says, I can't believe how well they did that. It doesn't have to attain the kind of glory and success and financial acclaim that so many things in this world do that we are tempted to think, oh, that's the important work. This is the important work. Whatever it is God has put in your hand to do. Scripture teaches us that we were created to imitate our creator, God, who made us. Sometimes people make the mistake of saying that work is the result of the fall. It's not true. When God put us in Eden in his perfect relationship with us in the perfect garden of Eden, he gave us work to do. Work is not the result of sin. Toil is the result of sin. We were literally made to imitate the creator himself when we create, when we take care of creation, when we do what he's given us to do. Genesis chapter 2 verse 15 says this, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it, to steward it. Right? Isn't that beautiful? 
Work, it turns out, friends, is a core element of the image of God inside of us. It's central to our personal dignity. It is central to our flourishing in the job of taking care of each other. So God cares about our work. And our work, it turns out, is a form of neighbor love. So we go back into the Old Testament, the book of Jeremiah, and the people of God have rebelled against him, and they've been taken as slaves into Babylon, and now they are exiles in a foreign land. And God writes them a letter, and the letter shows up in Jeremiah chapter 29. And in that letter, God tells his children, now don't get too anxious to come home because you're going to be here for a little while. So I want you to plant crops, I want you to start growing flocks, and I want you marrying off your kids and having grandkids. And here's part of what God tells his people in Jeremiah 29.7. They're living as exiles, as slaves in a foreign land, and here's what he says. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Pray for these people who have taken you as slaves. Isn't that fascinating? Pray for them. Work well, because when things go well for them, it's going to go well for you also. This is one of the reasons why sloth is a sin. And Paul says that if someone will not work, not cannot work, but will not work, we need to take food from them. Sloth is a sin because God intends us, even in complicated, difficult situations, to learn how to pray and work well for our neighbor. And in their welfare, we're going to find our welfare. You can track this down if you like. The Old Testament has several things to say about slothfulness. Some of it in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 19.15 says this, Slothfulness casts into a deep sleep, and an idle person will suffer hunger. Right? You can find a lot of this kind of wisdom in the Old Testament. So we see that work is actually part of God's redemption plan. We steward God's creation for his good and for our neighbor as well. Martin Luther, the great reformer, put it like this, God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbor does, right? We're not doing something because God is lacking the kind of code that I can write. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God owns a million lines of code and a million servers. He doesn't need me to write another line of code, but your neighbor does, right? Your neighbor needs that to be done well. So our work becomes a kind of neighbor love. And then Paul puts this pretty explicitly as well in this passage. We were created to give and not to take. We were created to contribute instead of taking. He says in verse 8, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. This is the example we're giving you. But with toil and labor, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Some of you know my first degree is in economics, so I apologize if a little bit of economics fill is coming out here, but I think this is important. A thriving economy is the result of virtuous people engaged in the exchange of their gifts and resources. Okay? A thriving economy is the result of virtuous people engaged in the exchange of their gifts and resources. Remember, Jeremiah says, in their welfare, you are going to find your welfare. That's not a government welfare program. That means in their well-being, you're going to find your well-being. 
So we realize that things like the profit motive are not evil. Mistreating our neighbor is. Taking from our neighbor is. And let me just add this as well, and this is, this is Pastor Phil talking here. Any economic system that relies on the systematic redistribution of wealth from those who work to those who don't will eventually hurt people because we weren't created to live that way. We were created to live a different way. Whatever it is God has put in your hand to do, do it as unto the Lord, Paul says in Colossians. And again, like I said, Scripture speaks of this a lot. Psalm 112 talks about this. I'm going to give you a little, bit, a little section of this. But in speaking of the righteous individual, and in speaking of even in terms of wealth and lending and generosity and righteousness, listen to how the psalmist writes about this. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with a man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. You see, what we receive from our work is not intended to be hoarded and held onto, but this individual, the righteous man or woman, learns how to give generously and lend generously and treats their affairs with justice. This is how work works inside of the economy of God inside of the heart and life and family where God is at work. So Paul even says in verse 12, now such persons we command, we even encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Work well, he says. And you can honor God with that. You end up taking care of family and neighbor with that. And remember how he talked to them about praying for him and his missionary team. You can actually help spread the gospel with that as well. Inside of this story, there is this great big Old Testament story about how these things happen inside of their lives. They were actually taught inside of the Old Testament law. You can read a lot of this explicitly in the book of Deuteronomy. They say, in the cities and villages where you live, every time you gather in the harvest, every time you slaughter your flock for food, every time you finish the garments that you make, you take 10% of whatever it is your hands have made and you put it in the public storehouse. And there in that public storehouse, if your neighbor's flock had a blight and died, if your neighbor's harvest did not work, then your neighbor has access to food. You pull all this together, you put it in the public storehouse, and your neighbor, if something goes wrong, has something to eat. It provides for the Levites and for worship so that we can all worship together. Right? All of this is inside of Scripture. The things that we gain from our work and our labor, we take care of our family, and we take care of our neighbors, and we actually provide for common worship. So Paul is encouraging these people. Sloth is a sin. Learn how to work well before God so that you can provide for and take care of all the things that God wants you to do and find that kind of direction in life that God created you to have. Their work is important to their discipleship in Jesus Christ. Their witness to each other and the rest of the world and even for the spread of the gospel itself. So he tells them, and again remember, that these are Christians living in difficult situations. Verse 13 and as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. 
The day-to-day grind really can sap our energy and our motivation to keep this up. I spent time in a cube farm with a gigantic international company that eventually tore itself to shreds uh, via accounting, illegal accounting practices from the end. I sat in the cube while that company fell apart. I know what it's like <laughs> to walk into a building and think, I don't know what in the world this is for, right? But he encourages these Christians, don't grow weary in the good work God's given you to do. Keep this up. Continue to endure. Your discipleship, it's important to that. Your neighbor, it's important to that. Your relationship with God, it's important to that. And we can even feel easily discouraged in the good work of following Jesus Christ wherever he has us or bearing witness to the gospel. Please pray for us because there are those who want to stop us from spreading the gospel. So it would be easy to just not talk about Jesus. Pray that that doesn't happen. Don't grow weary in doing the good that God has given you to do. And if there are those who disobey, sometimes discipline is necessary. Don't treat them as an enemy, but treat them as a brother or sister in Christ who just hasn't listened to the command, the word of the Lord, and hasn't done what God has asked them to do. Remember, this is a mutual support society. Remember, we're praying for each other. We're encouraging each other. We're living alongside each other as we walk through this life. Let's encourage and pray for each other. And as Paul draws this all to a close, here's what he says in verses 16, 17, and 18. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is a sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way, of write, the way I write. Even if Paul had not physically written the letter, he signs each letter. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. This is maybe the second prayer inside of this little chapter that I think needs to sink into us and become a part of us, maybe even something to memorize. Now may the Lord of peace himself Give you peace at all times and in every way. Whatever it is God has given you to do in your daily life, whatever it is that you face, however it happens that the pressure from the outside world makes it hard on you to be a follower of Jesus Christ, however that happens, may the Lord of peace give you peace at all times and in every way. This is the work of Jesus Christ in our lives. When Christ is at work, when Christ has his way in our hearts, we can actually find peace. The world around us, friends, makes it so easy for us to find other things instead. Anxiety, fear, division, distrust, and even hate. And when those things are at play inside of my heart and my mind, that's not the work of Christ. That's the work of my sin nature. That's the work of my own fear. That's the work of things inside of me that need to be gone. But when Jesus is at work, there can be peace at all times and in every way. And that can be an encouragement to us. Because every one of us in this room knows what it means to walk through seasons of life where the last thing we think we know is peace. 
But with Jesus, we can find it. And we should pray for each other this way, right? Guys, we always, we always have a God who is greater than our worries and our fears. We always have a God who is a rational reason for confidence and joy. We have a Jesus Christ who has saved us and holds us firm and secure until the day that He comes to take us. In all times and in every way, may God grant you peace. Let's pray.